as you try to bring about change, learning to both give and to earn trust in implementing new processes, new plans, new policies. If you don't have that foundation of trust, it's not going to happen. You're listening to Paul Suglin. He's the subject of this podcast. Hello, my name is Tim Hillock, and this is my podcast, Bending Granite, about people making significant change. This is the second season of Bending Granite podcast, and we'll begin with a three-part interview by Tom Mosgeller with past mayor of Madison, Paul Soglin. Season three will feature up to eight new podcasts, where you're going to hear the inside story from our book, Bending Granite. Stories like Never Waste a Crisis with Michael Williamson, Clinical Health Engineering with David Gustafson and his team at the University of Wisconsin, Leadership at Ian Pizza, and more. We invite you to join us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Or just come visit us on bendinggranite.org. That's one word, bendinggranite.org, where you can read and hear more stories about people who are making positive change. If you like what we're doing, subscribe, and we'll keep you updated with new stories. We encourage you to share this podcast with others. So Paul Soglin is our guest. He's being interviewed by Tom Moskeller, the inspiration for our book, Bending Granite. But first, I thought we needed a little background about Paul. In my opinion, and that of many others, Paul is one of the most significant figures to shape the current landscape of Madison, Wisconsin. It's really amazing. Paul served as Madison's mayor three different periods in time, starting in 1973, again in 1989, and once more in 2011. Each of these time periods had their own unique challenges. He served a total of eight terms, eight. Consider this, of the now 60 people who have served Madison as mayor, 58 of them served only one to eight years, most only one year. One mayor, many years before Paul, served a whopping 11 years. Paul, he served twice that. He was mayor for 22 years. 22 years. I visited with noted historian of Madison, Stu Levitan, and here's what he had to say. You know, he's good. It's what he does really well. He's good at it. He enjoys it. You, you, you know, it's, why would you not want to do it again and again and again? You'll hear more from Stu at the end of this podcast. Talk about how Paul a radical of the late 60s Vietnam era, was able to be elected to the city's common council at the young age of 23 and was elected mayor at the age of 28 in 1973. I mean, what's the chances of that happening today? Anyway, this is an interview by Tom Moskeller, where Tom explores with Paul his background with total quality management. TQM, and how he evolved from some initial skepticism to embrace the concepts in supporting his agenda moving forward. This change came during his second period as mayor from 1989 to 1994. As it is popular these days to judge politicians and their records, 
we set out only to recognize Paul's humanity and the fact that for so many years the people of Madison put their trust in him. Just start by talking a little bit about when you think back to the time when you came in as mayor or observations of this work. What what was your kind of initial reaction or thoughts about what the heck this stuff was from your perspective? Well, the context was that the city was going through very significant change. And that's what attracted me to come back into office in 1989. Uh, It was change that was profound in that new for Madison and Dane County, and our community was basically unprepared for for what was happening. And that was a significant demographic change where we were going from what had been a 93% uh, white community, principally at least half the community college-educated, to a community which today... Over half of our public school students are not white. Population of the non-white community is is close to 30-35%. And we had issues involving race, racial disparity, and economic challenges, and we were unprepared for it. Now, in the meantime, what I inherited was the TQM program, the, the Total Quality management program that had been implemented. It was adopted by half a dozen of some 15, 16 city agencies, two of which happened to be, by coincidence, very critical to what was going on. One was the Madison Police Department, and the other was the Department of Public Health. At the same time, while you didn't have full embrace in the planning department, there were, shall we say, inroads had been made. So that these critical agencies were not just responsible, but were looking forward to the, the challenges that we had to address in, in 1989 and 1990. Now, when, when you bring change to an organization, to a department, it's going to be disruptive and the workforce, the people who do the work, are, are always going to be suspicious as to why a transformation is taking place. There are two things that make that change, that transformation, smoother and more effective. One is the most important thing in any relationship, and that's trust. Trust within the organization, trust among the people who, who work with one another. The second one which is, is just as important, people will approach the transformation differently, the change in work, the change in responsibility, the change in assignment, if they had participated in designing it as opposed to having someone from the outside or someone top-down hand it to them. And those were the, the really critical factors that made things work, and most important, provided us with insightful employees who could recognize where things needed to be done differently. They were the ones who could see it. And and consequently, not only were we able to affect some changes that management wanted to advance, 
that I wanted to advance as mayor, but it affected changes that they saw in their daily, uh, daily work experience. And if I remember correctly, Paul, when you came in as mayor again, you were skeptical. And there, there was good reason for that. But I think it would be helpful for people to hear why you were skeptical. Okay. First, let's go back to the first 10 years as mayor. I'd always been data-driven. Mathematics is yeah. in my heritage. My father taught it. And I had always enjoyed mathematics and, and, and analysis. So a data-driven program was, was already important to me. The other thing I had already learned was the importance of workers participating in decisions, not in an organized way, but it was just something that we'd seen as we'd opened up city government in the 1970s and were bringing more and more uh, employees into decision. And there's, there's a good example of this. We were having a terrible time enforcing building code violations. This meant cooperation between the uh, building inspectors and the city attorney's office. And the process is relatively simple. Building inspector goes in, finds a violation, writes up the code violation. 30 days later, if it's not corrected, it is rewritten, this time sent to the city attorney's office for prosecution. And in turn, a court date is scheduled. The building inspector has to be at the trial as a witness, and then we get uh, the resolution of the case. Well, it was total chaos. It was so bad that everyone was missing appointments. There was antagonisms between the two departments, and the property owners with the violations, knowing how ineffective we were, uh, basically ignored us. My first effort to make this work was to bring the two department heads together, the head of building inspection and the city attorney. That seemed logical at the time. Well, the two of them, because of their past history, had no use for one another, and all they did was, was, was quarrel like two cats trapped in a, in a small room. So we started thinking about it, and we had one young building inspector who really wanted to get a hold of this. We had in a, ended up setting up a staff team of about seven, eight people, building inspection, city attorney's office, and I don't know what motivated me, but I brought in an outsider sort of to make sure it was, uh, there was peace at the table, a referee. It wasn't the department heads. So we had different people at different levels, and in fact, this young building inspector, Bill Bakken, chaired the committee. Well, after about six weeks, they came up with a plan, flow chart, they shook hands, and building inspection, city attorney, became best friends, and the program was effective. So I had seen what diverse teams were capable of doing. So when I came back into office in 89... Tell, tell people uh, a little bit of your chronology. So this, this episode with building inspection occurred uh, in my first 10 year in office, which was between 73 and 79. This happened actually at the end of 73, 1974. And like I said, it, it gave me the insight as to the advantages, instead of having two department heads work things out and make a plan, of having the people 
actually touch the problem, get together as a team, and bring in some outsiders to smooth things over, keep people on task, probably call them a facilitator today. And that led to a, a successful program. So in 1989, when I returned to office, I'm already, shall we say, data-driven. I'm already convinced of creating teams of multiple agencies, not led by the department heads, but by people who do the work. And at that point, the city was probably four or five years into the TQM program, but it was deeply troubling to me. And the parts that troubled me were this. It was, there was, shall we say, talk of a good game, which I embraced. But the actual performance, I saw some, some, some things I didn't like. Uh, what troubled me, first off, was the implementation of the management pay plan. All the department heads uh, should have, by January 1st of that year, received, if they were going to, whatever pay increases. Here we were in the weeks, two weeks between the election and my taking office, and my predecessor, who brought TQM to the city, suddenly was in a rush to get the management pay plan adopted, which had, was, was long overdue. So there was that troubled me, but the actual implementation of the pay plan itself troubled me, and that was that... The six department heads who had fully embraced TQM got very significant raises, and the rest of the department did not. And I did not like the idea that, in effect, if you embrace TQM, uh, you were fine and rewarded, and if you didn't, you were punished. And and I, I just I can see withholding a pay raise from people who are poor performers, but not punishing them. For, for, for failure to embrace TQ. So that, that, that troubled me. This, the second thing that, 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 that troubled me was that I wasn't given any data showing the effectiveness of the program. And so, in effect, I've come into office, I have an agenda, which is to particularly deal with the growing racial disparity in the city. I got some ideas on how to, how to address it, and I'm being told that the way to manage the city is through TQM, and that's, in effect, more important than anything else. And I'm saying, wait a second. The people of the city own the city government. I was elected. I'm the instrument to bring the change they want. That change is the number one priority. My first week in office, pledging a commitment to TQM is not my highest priority. So what I did at that juncture, particularly because conceptually I was attracted here in the spring of 1989 to much of the fundamentals, is I said, okay, I want an independent audit. I want a report on what's happened with the city's commitment to TQM and, and what are the results. Well, okay, so I'm skeptical. I put everything else on hold involving the program. But six, eight months later, I get the report, and there's some good works here. There's, there are successes. There are some stuff that, shall we say, supersede 
my skepticism, any hypocritical programming that I was suspicious of. And so now I said, okay, let's take our commitment to TQM. Let's take these objectives, this vision of the city, and let's merge them. And that's when you and I started working closely together. And because as it turns out, our interests coincided, and I see this in a lot of the, the, the quality work, our interests coincided in more than just TQM. It has to do with the vision. It has to do with what you expect for your community. And in this particular case, it was not benign neglect when it came to communities of color or the impoverished or those who were facing challenges in vital services like health. We're not going to tell you how to do it. You have to figure it out. I think that that's just like an essential element for anything to succeed. And it's part of the other part. The other part of that corollary is don't give me 99 ways of saying no. Find the one way of saying yes. Hey, I'm the mayor. Why is it on me to figure it out? I'm not the one who's who's doing that work. I'm not the one who has to move that piece of equipment. I'm not the one who has to work with those people. You do. Uh, you figure it out. The the other thing that that goes with that, and and I think I think is very critical in all these organizations, is the understanding of power. So, at some point, a reporter kind of in a snotty way said to me, you know, Mayor. I've looked at the record and what's going on over the years. You get everything you want. I said, no, no, it's the other way around. What happens is people want things and I adopt them. And because I adopt what other people want, you may think it's mine, it's theirs, but because it's theirs, it succeeds. And so it goes to what I call the Tom Sawyer School of Management. We recognize that the fence needs to be painted. So I'm the mayor. We got to paint the fence, huh? My job is to find people who are going to want to paint the fence. And I'm not going to do anything but sit back and watch. Well, to do that, if you have power, and I did have power, there's no denying it. The influence in any city of of a mayor is considerable. If you're not afraid to share it, to allocate it, to trust people, what happens is you share that authority and you are repaid with more power and more influence. So there was a point in my life back in the 70s when we were doing city budgets, I wanted absolute control in the executive budget, my budget, of how the decision was made to spend every dollar. Nothing went into that budget without my approval. When it came time to do the neighborhood resource teams, I had to go through a transformation, and so did certain departments. And I said, okay, if we truly believe in this, we are going to have some amount of money. It could be six figures. It could be seven figures. And when we get from our neighborhood resource teams the recommendations of what the community wants, we're going to simply say yes. So the, the bus route from the uh, La Follette High School area out to Owl Creek, 
It was basically designed by the high school students who attended La Follette who lived in the Owl Creek area. It cost about $250,000 to implement that first year. We gave them a blank check. From the standpoint of efficiency, from the standpoint of volume of ridership, it didn't pass all any of the conventional tests. No planner of bus routes would have designed that route. But we spent a quarter million dollars on a bus route designed by a bunch of 16-year-olds. And that's the commitment you have to be ready to make. And if it fails, it's my responsibility. If it succeeds, it's theirs. But in the process, you not only get the bus route, but you get a different way of thinking about how to design bus routes. Uh, Same thing is true when we uh, funded the grocery store. No grocer, and I'm talking about professional, big-name grocers, would come into the Ally Drive neighborhood and make the investment. But we had a Latino woman who had a background in operating groceries. If we could help her with the downstroke, investing in the Landon building, and it's been, what, seven, eight years now? We have a thriving grocery. We have food access to a neighborhood who went into a crisis because its only food source was Walgreens, which closed. That's what the neighborhood said, and therefore it went into the budget. Here again is Madison's historian, Paul Levitan, to give us his take on Paul Soglin becoming mayor at the young age of 28 and the political forces at play in 1973. Hey, I'm Stu Levitan. Uh, my current identity is a historian writing books about the history of Madison. I was on the county board, a city commissioner. I was chair of the Landmarks Commission, chair of the Community Development Authority, chair of the Zoning Board of Appeals, and vice chair of the Plan Commission. My professional career was as a labor mediator arbitrator for the Wisconsin Employment Relations Commission. I'm a deadhead and uh, and, and firmly believe that Bob Dylan is, is the greatest singer-songwriter since Homer. There, there are a number of forces that are swirling around. You've got the, the latter days of the anti-war movement. Remember, the, from America's perspective, the war was over. And in fact, the POWs came home two weeks before the 1973 primary. So the intensity and the anger and the overwhelming nature of the war had started to recede, but the seeds that it had planted in terms of activism and involvement were still there. So it was, it was a really good time to be 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, because you weren't really, you weren't facing the draft and the war, but you still had intensity and the excitement of what had been generated. You, in the early 70s, you had the first flowering of the women's liberation movement, which really, it was, women's liberation was not an aspect of the 60s, it was an aspect of the early 70s. You had the beginnings of the gay liberation movement in the early 1970s. You had the eating co-ops, you had the movie co-ops, you had the living co-ops. So you had a very fertile and active youth culture that was now freed from the overwhelming oppression of, oh my God, I could be drafted and sent to Vietnam and die. So you had the excitement and the vitality of the counterculture without that overwhelming fear and oppression of 
the war as a minute-by-minute thing in your life. Paul's base, of course, downtown was what got him through. And here we have to thank the constitutional amendment for the the 18-year-old vote, effective in that 1972 election. And they were still pretty pissed off at, at not being able to defeat Richard Nixon. And now we got their own guy. I'm 19 years old and and my alder is running for mayor. You bet I'm going to vote. And to make sure they remember to vote, Soglin had sound trucks. Mayor's mayor elections never had sound trucks before. Soglin, Soglin had this had a great campaign. Paul won a convincing victory. He didn't squeak in. He won and was given a mandate and was also given a mandate by an increasingly liberal and progressive common council. So you had the forces aligned, that is, which is what he needed. I mean, those five years that he spent on the council is what got him elected mayor, because people saw, oh, he's leading the fight for mass transit. He's leading the fight uh, for public safety. He's trying to you know, rein in the police department. He's, he's trying to do these good things. Well, the most important thing Paul did in that first term and what really made that first term or that first administration historic is the way he opened city government to people who had not been inside before. He opened up city boards and commissions to young people, to women, to blacks, uh, to gays and lesbians. And up until Paul, it was all middle-class, middle-aged white men. There was this perfect storm of a very polarizing mayor who had been in office for two terms and had also run in two elections before that. So he was a very known quantity. He was implicitly running against Paul as Paul's going to blow everything up. But Paul had been in office for five years and hadn't blown anything up. He was a well-spoken, articulate, forceful speaker. But you look at Pete Buttigieg as a brilliant public speaker, Paul is that good. I mean, Paul can give you then analysis and explain why something has to be done and do it with enough personality that it doesn't sound like a law book. He, he, you know, he's good. It's what he does really well. He's good at it. He enjoys it. You, you, you know, it's, why would you not want to do it again and again and again? Thanks everyone for listening. Please listen again soon for part two of our interview with Mayor Paul Soglin. Thanks go out to Tom Moskeller for his masterful and subtle interviewing techniques. I'd also like to recognize the Bending Granite core team of Tom Moskeller, Maury Cotter, Kathleen Paris, and Michael Williamson. You can always learn more about what we're up to on our website, bendinggranite.org. And of course, a special thanks to our esteemed Madison historian, Stu Levitan. I'm Tim Hellock, and this has been another episode of Bending Granite.